stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present, and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hello everyone, my name is Madura and I am the new host of All The Best. Shout out to Danny, my predecessor, for all of their incredible work on this show. I already miss them. However, I am so excited to be here sharing stories with you all. This week, we're bringing you stories about the transformative capabilities of something many of us take for granted, the clothes we wear. In our first story, Tian explores the amazing wardrobe of fashion designer Oriana Marullo. I'm in the ABC building on North East Road. You know the one, the giant towering block of a building, a common reference point as you head out north. Iconic in its own way. I'm here to meet someone special. Someone with a kind of a portal. A portal that takes us places. To other times, other places, other worlds. Walking down this seemingly blank hallway It's kind of hard to believe something so exciting lies just behind one of these doors. A Narnia of sorts. What gives it away for me on approach is the smell. The smell of rich fabrics, worn leather, and the familiar scent of days gone by. Ori. Hi, Tian. My name's Oriana Marillo. I'm a costume designer. And what's this space that we're in today? I've set up my very new space of my whole collection. Um, finally dipped it out of the garage. And um, it's literally my history of, of costuming and fashion as well. So I've been collecting since I was very young. And I thought it was time to hang it up and put it somewhere that I could get to it. So I started in fashion, but I always loved costume. I loved old films and looking at who the designers were and how glamorous those films were. And so I I followed my heart and I went to Sydney and I studied at a very late age and I studied costume finally, which opened a lot of doors for me. And that's where it started. And I hopped straight into film from then. I did a few plays here in Adelaide before I did that. And I really discovered that that was my calling. I I remember walking into Burnside Players um, rehearsal uh, into the hall. And I just loved the smell of it. And I just went, I love this. This is is right. (laughs) I don't know what it was about the smell, but I was like... (sighs) 
it's like I breathed in happiness or something, you know, being part of theatre and doing those shows was so much fun. Mm. And so is there a piece here um, that kind of speaks to that time, that early time? Yeah, you want to come and have a look? Let's, yeah. Let's so uh, this was in uh, Romantic Comedy. And I'm pretty sure it's the same one. I've had this dress forever. Um, it's a two-piece 1960s because romantic comedy was set in the 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah. So that's been that's been with me for a very long time. But before that, I was collecting my sister's clothes. Right. Yeah. So that's how it actually started. I just loved the way my sisters used to dress. I had older sisters, and they're over here. Great. <laughs> I've Let's got them here. That. And they have been in a production. And much to my sister's horror, <laughs> I kept them. And they're, so um, they're from the 1970s. And so that's a pantsuit that is featured at the beginning of Runcana Black. And so is some of that. So we've got and a, bright, some of that. a bright green, we've got a bright red. What kind of green would you call it? So that is green. lime green pantsuit. And it it was during a time of the Bay City Rollers, and I used to m- remember my sister wearing this. It's got all the top stitching, all the blue top stitching, so it looks like a denim jacket with really wide flares. And I remember used to dance to this with Bay City Rollers in the background at my cousin's house. And, um, and I just loved it so much that I wanted to grow into it, so I kept it when she fell out of love with it, you know, into the new fashion. Um, so yeah, and it's it's ended up in a production. So that was that was great. That was great. And I've also used my father's clothes in a production recently, which I'll show you around the other side in a minute, um, because I just I, I just find it all uh, valuable in a sense of history, and you can't recreate that. It it, it has to be a real item, um, a real piece to actually read read like part of that history it's very hard to recreate is what I'm saying it's very hard to recreate period clothing because of the fabrics the the pattern um, and the colors that they were even dyed it's actually almost impossible to recreate it perfectly um, unless you have the source of the old fabric to start with so for my own lived history I know what the shapes and the colours should be because um, I, I, I know that in translation people just reading are like trying to learn about that time. It's very different to actually living it. So then how do you say go before your time? Um, you know are you drawing on mm-hmm. inspiration from photos or mm-hmm. films or? Yeah a lot of research and a lot of watching old films set in the actual appropriate time like a 1945 film that's actually got 1945 clothing and suits and dresses and shoes that is the closest to the inspiration I can get because there's a real artistry to those old films I had lots of money to spend on on the clothing so and the designers that used to also participate in those days, which happens now, but it's not as obvious as it was then. Like you can tell when Dior was helping a film because Dior had a specific look about the dresses that he would create or Adrienne or 
um, Ori Kelly, who's like my my namesake, because I often call myself Ori. Um, you know, you could tell when it was an Ori Kelly film that everyone had a certain style. And also you'll find that the older women might have been wearing something that was from the 20s and the 30s. Um, not everyone would wear the same style. Not every There were different shaped people in that period. So again, there was a very, dis- going on from the distinction of older and younger, which we don't do that now, because everyone wears the same clothes, younger or old. Everyone's got their own way of dressing. There's no, there's not even a class system like there used to be. Um, so you, there's a lot of research that has to be done into that and lots of books and lots of um, real life kind of stories of photographs of people as well everyday people um in their homes with their families because you know fashion magazines don't tell the true story of the fashion of the time it's only what a small amount of people are wearing just like now as you see the designers doing these way out crazy things you know the pillow dresses you know with the pillows and you know people hanging off of each other that's fashion it's not real you know um everyday clothing so it's really important to study the everyday clothing of the time to make the pr- the production look authentic. Mm. And how do you find you know things made today compared to things made? Oh my god, the, the seven wear policy like Kmart have. That's pretty much that's where fashion is at, which is really sad. So we're not going to have a lot of great stuff in fifty years' time. They're not using. Um, products anymore that are long lasting because of the consumerism of wanting to disposable fashion um, and they don't hang as nicely they don't look as nice as as the older fabrics you know it's almost plastic what people are wearing it actually is plastic um, cotton is very expensive you know because of the water so you know animal rights and the wool so it's it's a very complicated time for clothing um i don't know what the answer is to that yet um, what else and next i guess i can show you some other things from productions yes. that i've just well, recently done you must done. just have some like weird things as well in here i mean what is this thing over here i'm looking at it looks like a stomach oh Pregnancy belly. Oh my so god! So this is a pregnancy belly I used on Red Hill for um, one of the fat suits. I made a donkey costume. Say, what is that up there? Costume. You know, is bathers. I collect vintage bathers. Kids play, and so that was a two-man, uh, two-man donkey for an eight-year-old boy. Everything. I collect everything. Pajamas. If I need old pajamas, they're sportswear. I've got to wear them out till, you know. And you need people always in bed in a film. You know, there some always, army. There's always someone um, sleeping. Lots of um, tradies. <laughs> Fine. So you, just, you just never know what you're going to need. I mean, even I think when I came up and visited you last time, there were these amazing boots that were like hand made. With, oh yes, yeah, I've actually I've actually put them in a case. Yeah, because they're they they're were actually very old. Um, old handmade nail boots. Like they're, um, but they actually the bottom of the soles were made have haven't nails in them, which are over here. Mm. Um, what what era would have that been? So this could be anywhere from the mid eighteen hundreds to. Um, up until the 1930s, so hobnail, there we go, hobnail um, boots. 
So what they are is they were made to last. So, you know, we live in a period where they would only ever buy one pair of boots for their whole life to work in. And so they would hammer in these nails and that's what made them last. And the leather is so thick Mm. that it could have been made out of something like a horse, something with a really tough hide. Mm. I I have my collection actually starts from the 1870s. I have not met a, a lot of pieces, but a very few that I bought from the Banana Room, which was a very old store that no longer exists. That was a huge, it was a fabulous South Australian icon for vintage clothing. And I, I've, I've got that piece in an 1870s wedding dress that I, I bought to restore. And it's still in the blue paper, <laughs> waiting for me to retire <laughs> so I can restore it and probably give it to the museum because it's so beautiful silk. It's such a beautiful piece of silk. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me, Ori. I could talk for hours. Of course. About all of it. Yeah. And, I, and you yeah. don't have hours? <laughs> and just like that, I'm back in the hallway and back into reality. See, you just never know what's behind some of these doors. That a door can unlock a world. Just like a simple dress on the street or on the screen can speak volumes. I think Edith Head, considered one of the greatest costume designers in film history, summed up her line of work pretty well when she said, it's a cross between magic and camouflage. There's definitely a little magic to Ori's collection. A museum of everyday life, documenting the beauty and the mundane. That story was produced by Tian Cook. It was originally broadcast on Radio Adelaide's background sound. Listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. Next up, in an intimate reflection, Teddy Dunn recalls the suits of his life. One. The first suit I ever wore was painted onto a cardboard egg. I was playing Humpty Dumpty at the time (laughs) with only my legs visible, uh, sitting on a drama block and then falling backward onto a gym mat at the queue of fall. (laughs) Whilst Humpty Dumpty's fate was a tragedy, I believe the most heart-wrenching element of this performance was that I wasn't given any eye holes. (laughs) And therefore never saw myself as an egg. (laughs) Two. My first experience wearing a fabric suit was on a runway when I was six. 
My aunt has always been a member of various clubs for middle-aged women. And one afternoon, they had a fashion show for children. My sister Rose and I, both happening to be children at the time, <laughs> were brought to a multi-purpose room. A makeshift dressing room was assembled from pin-up boards and inside was a rack of clothes. Hanging near the back was a red suit with a fine white line running through the fabric. Its beauty pierced my heart in a way that hadn't happened with any other piece of clothing except for my Peter Coombe t-shirt, which shouldn't count really because everyone would want that t-shirt. <laughs> I asked to wear the suit and some ladies exchanged glances, but they allowed me to try it on. It fit me perfectly, which everyone could tell immediately since I'd been watched carefully by several women who seemed suspicious but also like they were sewers and knew a good fit when they saw one. <laughs> I wore it with a white shirt with the top two buttons undone and walked down the drama block runway in my black patent leather shoes like a prince. My mum couldn't afford to buy the suit, but we were permitted to keep one item as a kind of payment, and so I kept the jacket. I cried later knowing that the suit was broken up and incomplete, <laughs> and that some boy would have my trousers. <laughs> like most of my crying as a child, it was secret. The tears were running into my ears, hot and quiet. My family don't remember any of this, but I have photographic evidence that I owned that jacket because I wore it to Bethany Newman's birthday party. <laughs> Three, my dad loves genealogy. He told me that one of our ancestors was a knight, like a knight in shining armor. I was in my 20s when I heard this, but I felt myself shift into a little child imagining myself sitting astride a white stallion resplendent in gleaming silver lance at the ready. It made sense that it was in my jeans to wear a suit made of armour. Four. A mid-blue 1970s suit paired with a bright orange tie and cherry red Doc Martens was my formal outfit. <laughs> Nobody was out as queer at Unley High in 2005, and when I subsequently came out as a lesbian in health class, Natalie Evrenyardis asked me if being a lesbian was why I wore a suit to formal. <laughs> I had a deep sense that it wasn't why, but that maybe the reasons were similarly transgressive. I said no, but gave no further explanation because uh, I didn't have one. <laughs> I spent $79 on the suit, $10 on the tie, and then with the remaining $11, I bought a share in a bottle of Bacardi with two Emilys. <laughs> Five. I didn't end up getting very much of that Bacardi. Um, because I smoked a joint and spent uh, most of the evening sitting under a tree and waiting for people to visit me. <laughs> yes. 
I felt I couldn't walk. <laughs> and that may have been because I had used duct tape to bind my chest and stomach. I didn't call it binding. I just wanted to fit into the suit. Uh, and the fact that I had bought a suit that would fit me only uh, if I didn't have breasts hadn't occurred to me. My mum wanted me to be able to have my hair and makeup done professionally. Uh, and so she took me to her hairdresser, Susie. <laughs> Susie was, and still is probably, a tiny coked up Italian woman. <laughs> who was once so speedy that she cut the webbing of her finger when she was cutting my hair and bled all over my ear. She gave me an updo and applied foundation like it was sunscreen. It was so dark against my milk-white skin that I seriously considered removing it, uh, but my mum convinced me that it was better than nothing. <laughs> she was wrong to convince me of that. <laughs> I was a monstrous aggregate with the head of a tubby beauty queen applicant who moonlit as a rhythmic gymnast the body of a tubby teenage boy attending his formal in 1974, <laughs> and riot girl feet. I had gone stag, so in all my photos I was sandwiched between four of my friends, all in peach or teal dresses, in poses that would look right if I'd been wearing a dress. I couldn't explain why, but I felt deeply humiliated. After the after party, I stayed with about six other people at Victoria de Cruz's overnight and left that suit hanging in her closet, and I never saw it again. Five, I own a suit now. It was made in 1937 for an Esquire. His name is printed on a little fabric tag on the inside of the waistcoat typed on a typewriter. While the pants and waistcoat fit me well, the jacket never has. I could never tell exactly why. Is it too boxy because my shoulders aren't broad enough or because my hips kick out the base of the jacket further than they should? Uh, the sleeves are the right length, but are my arms too skinny maybe or not skinny enough at the top? What kind of body did the Esquire have and why did I fit some parts of the suit and not others? As I was writing this, I realised it's likely that he didn't have breasts. Uh, regardless, I wear the two pieces that do fit me whenever I want to feel either A, as though I've made an effort, or B, proud of myself. I'm not sure what I will do if I'm ever proud of myself in winter and can't justify being jacketless. <laughs> Hasn't happened so far. Six. I really haven't spent a lot of time in my birthday suit. For some time, I didn't even make love in it. It's always been an ill-fitting thing, bunched in places, too tight and stretched in others, uncomfortable to move in. 
Nothing I've done to change myself, and I have done much, has made it comfortable. For some time, I thought about throwing it away, but it was a gift from my mum, and I've grown attached to it. So I'm getting it tailored. That story was written and performed by Teddy Dunn. I'm a person who also dresses outside of the box that gender initially put them in. So I loved hearing this affirmation of wearing clothing that fits you inside and out. Teddy first told this story for Queer Stories, a national LGBTQI storytelling project curated by Maeve Marsden. To hear more, you can search for Queer Stories wherever you get your podcasts. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boon Wurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Wurramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Timothy Nguyen. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.
Everybody look at those. What is this new pose? And where are your clothes? You reign supreme on your parade. Your parade's just waiting there. Wait till you get Close.